2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me in prayer. Lord God, we give you thanks and we give you praise, Lord, for today. Lord, we thank you for calling us out of sleep and into worship this morning with your bride. Lord, we thank you for our worship of song and of liturgy and of confession. We thank you for our Sunday school hour this morning and our study. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. And so, Lord, as we continue to worship you, Lord, through the hearing of your word, through singing, through Eucharist, Lord, we pray, God, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. For we know, Lord, that you are seeking such people to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So for the last few weeks, uh, you all know, we have been making our way through uh, Paul's letters to Timothy, both First and now Second Timothy. And throughout these, we have been stressing, especially over the last couple of weeks, this theme of a legacy of faith. Uh, Paul brings this up especially in Second Timothy chapter 1. But we see that he really based all of that on what he has laid out through First Timothy, especially those selections that we looked at. And so he, he told us throughout First Timothy... Proclaim the orthodox gospel of Christ. Uh, he, he told us that Christ came to save sinners. This is a trustworthy saying that is worthy of full acceptance. He told us that we are to seize our good confession that we have made in Christ by remembering our baptisms. And so today, as we go through what is probably some of the most familiar writings of Paul, maybe, at least for some of us, um, we see that he actually continues in that same theme of a legacy of faith. And so he begins here... In verses 14 and 15, which are just the first, uh, the first big sentence there in your bulletin, he begins here by reminding us, reminding Timothy, of the authority behind a legacy of faith. So really, we, we ask this question, you know, bringing up this aspect of passing on a legacy. Where does a legacy of faith come from, and what really gives it the authority to speak to me, right? What gives it the authority to give direction to my life? And so Paul, what he does here is he makes an appeal to two different sources of authority. He makes an appeal to those who have influenced us in the faith, those who have had godly influence in our lives. And then he also appeals to the authority of the Scriptures themselves. 
And so interestingly, as we begin this first sentence here in your bulletin, in verse 14, his first appeal is to the influence of others. It's not first to the influence of Scripture. He actually makes the appeal to the influence of godly influence in our lives before he turns to the Scriptures, which I find fascinating. And so he begins this appeal by intentionally drawing a contrast. And you have to kind of back away from the whole text and look and see what he's done so far. He writes here, but as for you, so as for you, Timothy, as for you, Christian, as opposed to those false teachers that are influencing the church in Ephesus, or as opposed to false and heretical teaching of Christ, as opposed to those who we saw last week who preach a different doctrine other than the orthodox gospel of Christ, or as opposed to those in 2 Timothy chapter 1 who might be ashamed of those who are suffering for the gospel, and also last week as opposed to those who like to quarrel over words which only destroy the church instead of building it up. As for you, Timothy, as for you, believer in Christ, continue in what you have learned about Christ and remember who taught it to you. And so while these verses are a little bit of a review, it's interesting. He has a few interesting details in just this verse alone. He writes here again in verse 14, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. This whom here in verse 14 is intentionally written in the plural, right? Now, we could say whom could be one particular person, but, but Paul writes it in the plural, meaning that we each have a hand in passing on a legacy of faith either to the next generation or helping one another as we pass on the faith by holding one another accountable to that good confession that we've made. And so Timothy himself, and we saw this at the beginning of Second Timothy, he learned the gospel from his mother and his grandmother. He learned it from Paul And he learned that its demands and its truthfulness, he learned it from a multitude of teachers. And so these people taught him not only the meaning of the gospel, not only its purpose, but also they assured him of its reality and its truthfulness. And so we saw last week, Timothy was not to search out new interpretation of Scripture. He was not to search out new novelties of Scripture, but rather he was to remain in the truth that he had already learned from many teachers, and he was to remain in the truth that he had already confessed. So to put it plainly, again, Paul is telling Timothy one more time, persevere. Persevere in the faith that you have confessed. Persevere and continue and remember the orthodox faith in Christ that you have been taught by many. And so we can notice how this aspect of whom, this aspect of plurality, really is an appeal to the influence of others in our lives, and it stresses that necessity of each of us helping to work to pass on the faith to one another and to the next generation, especially to our children and our grandchildren. So even before children are able to, and every parent in the room knows this, even before children are able to read for themselves or honestly even understand and comprehend what they're doing, children are watching the example of the adults around them. They're mimicking the example of their parents and their grandparents and those authority influences in their lives. And so Matthew Henry writes here, he says, really interestingly, he says, Consider from whom you have learned the truth. You've not learned it from evil men or seducers, but you have learned it from good men and good women who have themselves experienced the power of the truths that they are now teaching to you. So it's through this influence of others that we are able to pass on and to aid one another in passing on an orthodox legacy of faith. But then it's only after appealing to those others, that Paul then turns to the influence of Scripture in passing on our faith. He says this. So again, remember 
what you have learned and from whom you learned it, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. So yes, absolutely. We would affirm the primacy of Scripture for life and salvation. I think anyone in this room, looking around the room that I can see faces, would all affirm that truth. But we can see how Paul's point here in first appealing to the influence of others before Scripture, how it really, his point is really made well. Because after a heart has been molded, after a heart has been tilled by the influence of godly people in our lives, only then can Scripture begin to fertilize that seed that has been planted in the soil of our hearts in order to pass on a legacy of faith, in order to make us wise for salvation in Christ. And so with that point being made, any of us who have ever read anything of Paul's letters know that Paul is not putting Scripture underneath the influence of others. He's never denying the primacy of Scripture. He's not downplaying it. And he doesn't begin to do so here. What he does instead is he says we need to remember what we have been taught by those godly influences because we are only able to have confidence in their message because of the authority that's behind that message. And so he's not downplaying Scripture. Instead, what he says is these people influence your life. They get your heart ready to hear the Scripture and the gospel, and then the gospel can begin to take, take shape. And then he appeals to the authority of Scripture itself, and he goes on and he says – Not only is it able to make you wise for salvation, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be be competent, equipped for every good work. It says complete in the bulletin and competent in mind. I have an older version of the ESV, so I apologize for uh, for the confusion there. So complete, competent. A moment ago, uh, I read that quote from Matthew Henry, but I didn't read you the whole quote. I only read you the second half. I'm going to read you the whole quote now because I think this is fascinating and it helps us see what Paul is doing in his appeal to these influences. Matthew Henry says this. He says, it is a great happiness. It's a great happiness to know the certainty of the things in which we have been instructed. Not only to know what the truths are, but to know that they are of undoubted certainty. So then consider from whom you have learned the truth, not from evil men or seducers, but from good men and good women who have themselves experienced the power of the truths that they have taught you. And so in this text, also I would consider 2 Peter chapter 1, 21 and 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But this text in particular is probably one of the most supportable proof texts that we have on the divine authority and authorship of Scripture. And whole books have been written on these two verses alone. Multiple sermon series have been preached on these two verses alone. I've probably done it at some point. I'm not really going to do so today, but I've probably done it at some point. But, you know, pages upon pages of commentary. If you go to the ancient Christian commentary, I think there's like ten pages just on these two verses alone. (laughs) Uh, But we can also really see how you could easily get overwhelmed in the weeds because there's, there's a huge conversation that's going on underneath these verses. But just notice how Paul uses just these two verses to point to our broader argument that he's making of the importance not only of the authority of Scripture, but the authority of Scripture as it aids us in passing on the faith. Because he says that the authority behind all of Scripture is bound up in this one phrase. It is breathed out by God. All of Scripture is breathed out by God. 
Some translations that are in the room might read something like, all scripture is, comes by the inspiration of God or is inspired by God. And this, this word, breathed out by God, is a compound word that's made up of the words for God and for breathe. So I believe the word in Greek is pneuma, which is similar to spirit, kind of like ruach in, in Hebrew, which is similar to spirit and breath. But both of these words stress the divine authority behind the scriptures. So to put it plainly, what Paul is saying very concisely is that when Scripture speaks, God is speaking to us. And so he says here, it is breathed out by God and it is profitable, meaning that it is beneficial for us, it is useful for us, it is valuable for the believer. So you could easily just translate this clause here in this verse as, all Scripture is God-breathed and therefore all Scripture is good for you. Even those that we don't read all that often, like the Levitical law. It's good for you. But these two attributes of Scripture, these are the two attributes that all false teachers and all heretical teaching and and critics of the Christian faith regularly come after. Because what it does is they are trying to intentionally force us to question our confidence in Scripture as the Word of God. And if they cannot convince us that Scripture is not God's Word, then what they will try to do is shift direction and convince us that it's not good for us. This word is antiquated. This word is nasty. There's, there's violence in here. There's death in here. Why would a loving God do X things? And so notice, as we pass on a legacy of faith, we need to remember and remind one another that Scripture is not only breathed out by God, but it is good for you. And so notice he says here that it's profitable. It's profitable for believers. It's profitable for the church for passing on this legacy of faith in four very specific ways. He says it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And these four terms, they form a chiasm, which kind of looks like a step if you were to write it out, right? So there's two outside steps and two inside steps, right? And so the two negative terms are on the inside, and it's kind of sandwiched in by the two positive ones on the outside. But... What he has here is these two, this teaching and reproof, these relate to right doctrine, while correction and training in righteousness relate to right living. Or as we, the terms that we have used throughout all of ordinary time, these relate to orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Scripture is profitable for orthodoxy, for right belief, for teaching and for reproof, because Scripture lays out for us what we must both believe and not believe. But it's also profitable for orthopraxy, for correction and for training, for right living, because Scripture sets us aright, and it lays out for us what we must both do and not do as followers of Jesus. And John Stott argues here, he says that these four terms address both creed and conduct. So false teachers and critics of Christianity force us to try to divorce these two things. Your belief and your life do not really go together. You can believe things alone but then live a whole other different way. But Stott is telling us here, we actually, as, as the church and as believers, we should marry these things. We should not divorce them. Because for our creed, Scripture is profitable for teaching us and for reproof. For our conduct, for our life, it's profitable for correction us, correcting us and for training us. And so in each pair, the negative and the positive counterparts, that they're combined. When, when we are being taught, we are also being reproved. When we are being corrected, we are being trained. And so scripture 
It's to Scripture that we should always turn because Scripture is profitable for all things in the Christian life, both for belief and for life. So Scripture is breathed out. It is God-breathed. It's profitable so that we might produce some, that it might produce something in the man of God, in the person, in the believer who reads Scripture, who studies it, who believes it, and who lives it. Scripture enables us, Paul writes, to be complete or to be competent. Some other translations here read, Scripture enables us to be capable or to be proficient. Another one, I forget which one this is, I think it's the NIV, it says, Scripture is able to help us to meet all demands. So Scripture enables all believers to be capable of meeting whatever demand God has placed upon our lives by making us equipped to do every good work that he has commanded us to do. So what this text makes clear to us is that Scripture equips and enables believers for every single one of our ministries, whether that's the common ministry of prayer or our particular called ministries of evangelism or pastoring or just hospitality. There is nothing that God calls anyone to do that he does not equip them to do through his scripture. So to connect this to the context of what we have been looking at through these two letters, the Holy Spirit, breathing out the word of God through the pen of Paul, has breathed out a command for us and a demand to us to pass on a legacy of faith in Christ to each generation and to aid one another And it's through the authority of the scriptures that we are equipped to pass on our faith and also enabled to pass on our faith. And so then out of the authority of these scriptures, what Paul then does is he move into chapter 4, which is the rest of our text. He he starts to lay out this, how this really works out, how the authority of scripture really works out in passing uh, passing on the faith, but also how it works out within the church. And so he commands Timothy here in verses 1 and 2 which is about midway through the text in your bulletin, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ the Lord, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom to preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, there it is again, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so here in verse 1, he continues He continues to lean into that authority as he commands Timothy. One commentator even wrote here, he said, For Paul to charge Timothy, he adds gravity and weight to what he is about to command him to do. And so what Paul does is he raises the stakes by charging Timothy in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ. He's already appealed to the authority of Scripture, but now he's, even, he's going even further and saying, I'm appealing to the Father and to the Son who are watching you. He's compelled, Timothy's compelled to obey this command. Frankly, we're all compelled to obey this command because not only of the godly influences in our lives, but the fact that Scripture is authoritative and God the Father and the Lord Jesus are paying attention. And not only are they watching, but they are enforcing this command from Paul because he says even further, he says, Christ who is going to return to judge the living and the dead. So to put it plainly, Timothy and all believers will answer to God for how we respond to the duties that he has given us and gifted us for the building up of his church and for the faith. And so he commands here, he just says, I command you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will return to judge the living and the dead, preach the word. Preach the apostolic and orthodox gospel 
that you have confessed, that you have heard from many, that you believed, that you've been baptized in the presence of many, preach this word. Because this is the only word empowered by God to make someone wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So to pass on a legacy of faith, we are to proclaim this word boldly and openly and unapologetically. But he also lists here that this proclamation involves a few things. You are to preach it. Well, here's how you are to do it. First, you are to be ready, he tells Timothy. He tells us always be ready. Be ready both in season and out of season. Another way of looking at this is be ready both at a good time and also not at a good time. Basically, don't proclaim Christ only when it is convenient for your schedule. Proclaim Christ always. Chrysostom writes here, he says, let it always be your season, not merely during peace and security or when you're sitting in church, but always. And Theodore of Mopsuestia writes, every single occasion constitutes an opportune time for preaching and teaching Christ the Lord. So another way of understanding this is that we are not to be tossed about by cultural opinions, right? By the shifting of culture or by pragmatic approaches to church growth movements in order to discern how we should be preaching Jesus or what we should be preaching about Jesus or when we should be preaching this orthodox message that we have. Because the truth of the matter is is that Christ will always have some who approve of his message and some who do not. But regardless, this should not have any impact on the content of what the church is proclaiming about the truth of Christ. We are to proclaim the apostolic gospel and the orthodox gospel whether Listeners like what we are proclaiming or not. We are to be ready in season and out of season. But the second thing in our preaching the word here he tells us to do is that we are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So reprove and rebuke are fairly similar in terms. They sound kind of the same. But they both stress different disapproval of something. So whether that be reproving for actions or rebuking for um, wrong teaching or wrong words... This is all for the purpose of correcting error in doctrine and in teaching and even in lifestyle. So in our proclamation of the gospel of the word that we have been given that has been breathed out by God, we are to correct because of a desire to lead one another away from sin and into Christ. This is James' whole point at the end of his letter when he says, Go after those that have left because by doing so you will save their souls. But... Paul doesn't leave it at just reproval and rebuking because those are hard things to do. He said you should also exhort. So by the authority given to us by God, we are to command, we are to exhort one another about what we ought to believe and how we are to properly live it out. Again, Theodore of Mopsuestia here, he distinguishes between these three terms. He says that reprove applies to those who persist in their sin so that they might be led to understand it as sin. Rebuking is aimed at those who are actually engaging in sin. But exhortation is directed to those who might be led back through repentance. And so Chrysostom even stresses here, he says, if you convict and rebuke, but you do not apply exhortation, then all of your labor will be lost. We are to exhort by commanding one another, in order to encourage one another in the right belief and right practice of the faith in Christ Jesus. 
But also, one more thing in this verse, in all of this reproving and rebuking and exhorting and the stuff that just makes our modern society really uncomfortable, right? Paul tells us that we are to do all of these things with complete patience and teaching. And this is important because it shows us that we are proclaiming the God-breathed word in love and in care and through a desire to see others become wise for salvation in Christ. Chris Hostum, again, he writes here, he says, Admonition and consolation belong together. Conviction is completely intolerable in itself if consolation is not mingled with it. Even St. Benedict picks up on this in his rule for monastic life. He says, you should mix gentleness with sternness. At one time, you need to show the severity of a master, but at another, show the tenderness of a father. So let us not be belligerent in our exhorting or our rebuking or our reproval, but rather, let us be patient and committed to teaching one another with love. Because there's an important reason for this. And it's in verses 3 and 4. He says, you should do this because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is the whole reason that we reprove and rebuke and exhort with patience and teaching. So consider, consider what Paul is saying here, especially in light of our own culture. We are a fallen creation due to sin. And in our sin, we get easily attracted and distracted by speakers and preachers and politicians, etc. that tell us things that we like to hear and what we want to hear. Essentially, I laughed out loud at myself, and you don't have to laugh at me for this, but I laughed out loud at myself last night because essentially I realized... We are every, we are, all of humanity has the worst quality of every single hobbit, which is we only like to hear stories that pertain to us and that we already know the ending to. I think Tolkien mentions this in the prologue stuff before Fellowship of the Ring. But so what Paul tells us here, though, is he says there is a time that is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will not endure sound doctrine. And so what he's doing here really with this use of the word time is he's actually, if, if you like to circle in your Bibles, I don't have my pen that I usually do this with, but he's attaching this aspect of time with this idea of us being ready both in and out of season. They both go together because there is a season coming, so we should always be ready because both inside and outside the church, we will be required to preach the word by reproval, rebuking, and exhortation through patience and teaching. There is a time coming when people will not endure the orthodox gospel. There is a time coming when they will not abide sound teaching. They will not endure the right teaching of Christ. They will not endure a clear and right teaching of God's breathed out word. And this time was already at hand in Paul and Timothy's lives, but if you're like me and you read the news even like once a day, how much more so is that the case now? We are in the season when the nasty little hobbits aren't enduring sound teaching. Because instead what they're doing is they have itching ears, he tells us. They have itching ears, and so they are accumulating for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Some translations read, they want to have their ears tickled. 
I hate being tickled, right? I can't stand it. I think I, when I was a kid, my grandmother was playing with me, and I tried to do that, and I, I think I kicked her in the leg or something because I just I hate being tickled. Anyway, I was like five. You know, you, you kind of can excuse a five-year-old for doing that. But, but the way in which Paul writes this, though, it's, it's really disturbing. It's, stre- it's stressful because he's telling us that not only do we sinfully like to hear the things that we only want to hear, but we also sinfully maneuver our lives in such a way so that we only hear the things that we only want to hear. Essentially, he says, we have an itch to hear bad teaching, but we also create the itch for ourselves. We have a desire in our sin for teaching that meets our wants and our expectations, but we also create that scratch that needs to be itched. And so a time is coming and is now here when both, of, both those who claim to be believers and those who are simply imposters want a teacher, they want a pastor, they want a preacher who will not only tell them what they want to hear, but tell them that what they are already sinfully believing and already sinfully doing is just fine and they can continue in it. And so Paul's not leaving us in the dark on this. He's telling us here in verse 4, he says, they have itching ears because it inevitably leads to turning away from listening to the truth of God and wandering into myths. Rather than listening to the breathed out word of God that confronts them and would make them wise for salvation by faith in Christ, they instead look for teachers who will ignore the God-breathed word and tell them the things that continue to confirm them in their sinful desires. Origen writes here, I love this, he says, bad teaching simply leads to bad digestion. I thought about Ebenezer Scrooge here when he first sees Jacob Marley. He says, you could just be a bit of bad beef or undercooked potato. This is exactly, I think, what Origen is getting at. It leads to bad digestion. And so one commentator even noted, he said that itching describes those who have a desire to dabble with novelty, to assume to create new revelation and new teaching out of what God has already revealed. This intentionally contradicts what Paul told us last week in chapter 2, that we are to rightly handle the truth of the word of God. And Paul himself even comes to this in Galatians. He says, if anyone should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received and the one you have heard from the apostles and from Christ, even if an angel from heaven comes and gives you a different gospel, then let them be accursed. In the Greek, it means let them be anathema. And so he says, but as for you, Timothy, as for you, church, In order to pass on the faith, in order to continue, you must stand in contrast to those in verses 3 and 4. By rightly handling the word of truth, but also by fulfilling your ministries to which you have been called. So this both includes, this goes all the way back now to the common ministry of prayer for all kinds of people. But also the particular ministries that God has equipped us for in order to build up his church. And so Paul, what he does in this last verse here, he closes... By giving us three ways in which the believer stands in contrast in order to fulfill our ministries. He says again, but as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure sound teaching and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We fulfill our ministries by being sober-minded. Now, this does not mean so much being drunk as it means being clear-headed. Have the mind of Christ. Be sober-minded means to be free from passions that cause the itching ears And to accumulate teachers for yourselves, to scratch that itch. To be sober-minded is to be self-controlled. 
In the face of oppression and persecution, we must be clear-headed and sober-minded in order to fulfill the ministries that God has ordained us to. But we also fulfill those ministries by enduring suffering, meaning we must learn to embrace suffering and exile for the sake of the truth of Christ. And we must also endure whatever consequences may come out of proclaiming the orthodox gospel of Christ. And then finally, he says we are to fulfill our ministries by doing the work of evangelism. Do the work of an evangelist. Now, I'm grouping myself here as well, but this is the toughest one for a lot of us. Because we know that there are some naturally gifted evangelists. One is going to be here next week in Sunday school. And while some are particularly gifted for the task of evangelism, evangelism is a duty to be fulfilled by all believers in Christ. Because the job of an evangelist is simply to be a proclaimer of the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Particularly with the aim of seeing them converted by the gospel. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So, take this exhortation. And I pray that it comes from, and I'm trying to bring it from, a a place of patience and teaching and love. Take this exhortation and pass on your faith by proclaiming the orthodox gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, but also by remembering the message that you've learned, from whom you learned it, and about which you made your good confession. Because we have a message to proclaim that is not only powerful, but a message that has been empowered by God because it has been God-breathed, and it has been God-worked, and God-ordained, and God-fulfilled. So always be ready, regardless of the season, and fulfill your ministry, and pass on the faith. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.